let me be the first to say uh, Reverend Tim Haddon and Reverend Ken Bow knocked it out of the park. It was phenomenal. Absolutely. And uh, both of those both of those presentations in conjunction with Brother Galindo last night, um, if you could do a cross-section of what SOTAD is all about, a representative sample, I would say that that would be a good one right there. And uh, we appreciate their efforts very, very much. This afternoon, we're going to hear from Reverend Miles Young on multiculturalism and the church. And there is nobody, there is nobody that I can think of that has a better... Uh, theological and revelatory grasp of multiculturalism than Brother Miles Young. And then immediately following him will be Dr. Daniel Blash on biblical counseling and the 21st century church. I want to tell you, we are in for a treat this afternoon. Let's lift our hands and invite the presence of God in. from lunch, and uh, thank you, Brother Mayo, for leading us in some prayer and kind of bringing our minds back into focus for what we're going to hear this afternoon, because what you're going to hear is nothing short of revelatory. It is my distinct honor and privilege to introduce our next presenter, Reverend Miles C. Young. He's been the pastor of the Rock Church in Elk Grove, California, since 1998, He earned a Master's of Arts degree in Christian Ministry from the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary in Springfield, Missouri, and is a doctoral candidate in Missiology at Fuller Theological Seminary. Reverend Young has served on several boards, including the Global Mission Board of Directors for the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship. He is currently the Vice President of Alliance Mundial SA, a religious humanitarian organization in Honduras. Reverend Young is a composer and musician, recording nine gospel projects and traveling nationwide and internationally to minister through music. He has organized several music conferences, including West Coast Conference, Renaissance of Praise, and Innovate. It is my distinct privilege and honor to introduce my friend, Miles C. Young, as he presents Multiculturalism in the Church. I want to begin by thanking uh, our host, uh, Pastor Mayo, and the Cornerstone uh, Church, and thank God for their work, not only uh, during this symposium, uh, but the work they do throughout the year, and uh, a leading voice of revival in the apostolic movement. I think they deserve another big hand. And I uh, count it an honor, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to be uh, speaking to you today. And uh, I'm not sure if, if you'll be able to stay awake following the lunch. I understand how that is. So I'll try to keep this as informative and interesting as possible. Uh, and I may, I may deviate from time to time in the reading of this. Uh, from 
onset of this, I would like to clarify a couple of things or, or maybe uh, extrapolate a little further out. For me, this is not just, and I do count it an honor to be asked to speak on this subject. Uh, it is uh, an honor to be asked to because this is a passion of mine as, uh, and a conviction, but out of that passion and conviction, it has also become a burden. And uh, maybe as we go through this and then as we talk, maybe that burden will come through. And I make no bones about it. I hope that burden gets on everybody in here. For me, this isn't just about giving information. This is about sharing a heartbeat. And at the same time, I do not uh, approach this assignment uh, as having all the answers or having arrived at the ultimate destination when it comes to multiculturalism uh, or these cross-cultural ministries attempts. Uh, but because it is a passion and it is a burden and it is a conviction, uh, I feel like sharing this, the more that we talk about it, the more that we pray about it. And I think, personally, the closer we get to the Word of God and the closer we get in our relationship with Jesus Christ, I think we are more affected uh, by it. Uh, one more thing before we get into this. How that I have arrived at even an approach to the Scripture uh, from this vantage point, uh, I am, along with Brother Allard and I guess in somewhat uh, extended form, Brother Galindo, uh, we are what are called missiologists. And uh, we view scripture through the lens of missiology first. Some consider themselves theology or theologians, but missiologists view scripture from the vantage point of the mission itself. And uh, so some of that uh, you're going to see in this. But how that this became a part of my missiology or my view of the mission of God, the Missio Dei, uh, was shaped by events and incidents in my own life and my own upbringing. I was raised in uh, South Louisiana in the home of godly parents with a very global view of the world, partly because I had uh, grandparents that were missionaries and church planters. Uh, my grandparents had been missionaries planting churches in Australia, Alaska, India, taught in the Philippines and in the uh, South Pacific. And so I grew up with the heroes in our home being missionaries. My uncle and aunt were missionaries. Uh, my cousin died, first cousin died in New Zealand So as a missionary. And uh, so I grew up uh, with missions very upfront and focal, vocal in our home. My father was with the United Pentecostal Church, was the foreign missions director for the state of Louisiana for 26 years. And uh, so it was almost weekly there was a missionary staying in our home. So even though I grew up in the South, I had a very uh, big view of the world, even though it was in South Louisiana. And so the issues that are most often stereotypical of the South that we hear about uh, was somewhat alien to me because it was a world uh, foreign to the family and the home I grew up in. But I will never forget uh, the, when I became aware that there was racism in the church. My father had broke into a revival in just a matter of a short years, he took a church of about, about 90 people that had been without 
a pastor for a year and a half. Just imagine a church going without a pastor for a year and a half. And there was about 90 people that were in regular attendance. My mom and dad took the church, began to have revival. And in, it wasn't a matter, but a, a few years, God sent great revival. And at its height was somewhere around six to 700 people. And uh, one of those great surges of revival was in what we would call the hippie movement, men like Barry Sutton. Uh, there were about 40 people that came to the Lord, the Sutton family in that time, which was a great cultural change. The church went from being a southern church, and suddenly now we've got Peter, Paul, and Mary playing guitars and, and playing drums in the church, and it was like, well, this is a cultural shift. And I still remember, you know, they came in with their long beards and long hair and their flowered shirts, and uh, the hippies showed up. So that was a cultural shift. And uh, that revival just began to grow. And in that revival, uh, in not a revival service, it's just the flow of revival, uh, there was a uh, what would be called a black Baptist church, a Trinitarian church. Uh, the pastor came along with many members, and that pastor was baptized in Jesus' name and about 30 or 40 people. It was just an incredible season of revival in that church. And I was somewhere 13 or 14 years old, and I, I thought that was just the way the world rolled. And I will never forget standing in the middle aisle as a young teenager and a man in the church approaching and uh, asking me, is your dad going to change the water in the baptistry? And I said, what? Like, I'm not the church maintenance man. Why do I know about the, I mean, what? I was trying to figure out why is he asking me. And I said, I, I said what, do you, what do you mean? He said, is your dad going to have the baptistry water changed? And I said, well, what do you mean? I don't know, does it need changing? He said, and then he used uh, what we would call the N-word. And he said, well, he just baptized all of those. And I was shocked because I'd never grown up. I'd never been exposed to any of those things. And I went home. I was, I was crushed. I, did, I had never encountered anything like that. And, and I approached my father, I said, and I told him the story. And then it was like the awakening that there are real issues even among apostolic people. I think we're awake now, huh? And I wish I could say those issues are over and we've moved past, but sadly, we haven't. And I think, let's just be real, let's, we got an elephant in the room. I'm looking around and I see uh, two people, two men of color, and maybe some Hispanics scattered through. And I don't mean to single them out, I apologize if I did that wrong, but I think this is something that the apostolic movement needs to be talking about. And I recently was at, uh, this is preliminary to where we're going, okay? Um, I was recently with friends who pastor a church that is very multicultural, probably one of the most multicultural churches in the apostolic movement. And uh, he told me of a very uh, tragic story that happened in the last year or two where their church had gone to a rally and their church is probably a 50-50 split, we'll just use that, between uh, primarily African-American and Caucasian. And uh, at the arrival at the rally, uh, 
church where they were arriving at, an apostolic, we would call a conservative church, um, began to make recognition of uh, the black people that were in the group. And they said, oh, there's another one. There's another one. And then we're literally approached by the ushers saying, you're going to have to sit in the balcony. We're not talking 1963. We're talking 2017 in the apostolic movement. So what we're talking about today is not just filling time on a symposium list, but we need real change. And uh, I don't claim to have all of the answers, but I appreciate Brother Mayo for uh, having this discussion and allowing me the opportunity to share my heart. And if you're around me any length of time, you will figure out pretty quick, I am intentional about this. And uh, so with that kind of background behind that, and I hope, I hope that doesn't cast too uh, much of a negative account, I, I come with hope today. And uh, this is a positive thing that, that we are able to have this discussion and talk about making change for the future. So let's talk about multiculturalism in the church. Is it all right if I take this out? Okay. It is often said that the most segregated place in America is the church house on Sunday morning. Sadly, in too many places, this seems to be the case. A casual glance, even among the apostolic movement in North America, indicates that there is a need for serious discussion concerning multiculturalism or multi-ethnic ministry in the church. It is of utmost importance that the apostolic movement examines our current state as it relates to cross-cultural ministry. Our society is caught in the, dif in the difficulty of deep racial and social divides, which is heavily propagated by the liberal media and is often used by civic leaders as tools for political maneuvering. The current climate should, at the very least, prod us to ask the questions related to what role should the church play in the present context and who is welcome in our local churches and what does the scripture have to say concerning this matter. <clears throat> Cross-cultural ministry within the church presents many challenges. Even the very discussion can create misunderstandings which can lead to further division. The separation of people groups due to color, economics, or social status is not a new issue but has been an issue for the majority of human history. Genocide has been perpetrated against ethnic groups for centuries, and revolutions have been launched over ethnic and cultural divides. It seems to be endless. Where does one start when tackling the subject of multiculturalism? It is indeed a difficult task because we are confined within our own culture, and we are at best outside observers of any culture other than our own. In order to discuss multiculturalism in the church, it is needful that we define culture. The English word culture derives from a French term, which in turn was derived from the Latin word colère, which means to tend to the earth and grow, or cultivation and nurture. The first humans were placed into a garden. Therefore, the first culture was agrarian, thus agriculture. The garden shaped their divine purpose and job description. They were to manage and influence the soil and expand it. God placed in man in the garden with the intent of man expanding the garden until it filled the whole earth. 
Disobedience ruined the first opportunity for humanity and man was removed from the garden, but God was not through with earth or humanity. The Genesis account reveals culture is the means by which we manage, expand, and influence our context. The scripture reveals that subsequent to the fall, a variety variety of cultures were established. Cain creates an urban culture. Jabal establishes a culture of tent dwellers. Jubal develops a music culture. Tubal builds a culture of artists and metal workers. These cultures took the stuff of context, their personal giftings, and grew them to become patterns of living, which gave root to cultural development. Over time, a society is groomed and shaped by its thoughts, efforts, survival, environment, and accomplishments until it becomes the normal thought pattern of that particular people or place. These ideas and patterns are handed down from generation to generation and become the culture of a people. Cultural norms are those things with which we are familiar and comfortable and we are resistant to to operate or engage outside of our cultural context. Humans cloister together for protection and comfort in these zones of comfort. Our cultural comfort zones become things and places that we feel need to be remembered and even protected. This can be seen in a variety of ways that span from cultural holidays and celebrations to even the sharp, violent edge of gangs guarding their barrio. It is evident that fallen humanity has been unable to fix the gulf and the separation of peoples and cultures. Attempts to change society through legislative action are positive steps in the right direction. God's institution of human government plays an important role in helping societies find balance and moral footing, but due to the fallen condition of mankind, human government has its limitations. An example of positive change was the political and legislative adjustments that were brought about by what we know as the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement helped change laws, but it did not and could not change the hearts of fallen humanity. Only God can change the heart. One could even argue strongly that the church is the only place where the division of culture can truly be healed. In the United States of America, we have worked to pass laws of desegregation. We eat together, we play sports together, we go to school together, we work together, but we are reticent to worship together. The old adage, birds of a feather flock together, is true even within the church. This is a very big subject that in all honesty, I understand, will not be resolved in one 3,000 word paper as there are many dynamics and moving parts that have existed ever since God's judgment upon the builders of the Tower of Babel. A perusal of the book of Acts reveals that the early church and its leaders wrestled with the issues of race and diversity. It should be noted that the first corporate problem in the New Testament church was one of the mistreatment based on ethnicity. I find it significant, let me digress for a moment, that this is the first problem that we encounter in the church. Now we can back up to five and say, well, the first problem was Ananias and Sapphira, and and that has implications uh, coming from hypocritical worship prior that the story with Ananias and Sapphira, God said, no, we're not going to have this fake worship, and he kills it. He took it pretty serious. But that was more of an individual issue. 
But the first corporate issue that the church encountered had to do with race. And if we're going to take the book of Acts as our model, because apostolics, we love to say it's not just history. The denominal world wants to relegate the book of Acts to a historical narrative. And yeah, there's history there, but we as apostolics believe it provides the pattern for what uh, is supposed to be the apostolic church moving forward. If that's the case, then the placement of the first problem is that this is a significant issue that God wanted dealt with. And I could even, if we were at a typical holiness conference, now that we're following uh, our separation discussion, I find it interesting that we hear about this issue before we ever hear about standards of holiness. Just let that sink in a moment. It's almost as if God is saying, you better get this thing right before you even move to this other thing. The disciples, we're going to, well, let me just jump back in here. We'll get to that. In Acts chapter 6, Luke reveals that the church was struggling with issues related to ethnicity. The Hebrew believers who were providing the daily ministration for the church widows were neglecting the Greek widows. The issue and the struggle of ethnicity and culture in the body of Christ is therefore not a new issue. Luke revealed... Uh, and it's evident that the apostles understood that the work of God was going to be hindered if this race issue within the congregation was not resolved quickly. The issue of ethnicity within the New Testament church was dealt with early because God did not want the repetition of Israel's inward focus to be repeated within the church. Part of Israel's failure as the people of God was that they did not fulfill their role in the Missio Dei. The blessing of covenant became centripetal or inward moving rather than centrifugal which means outward moving. It was God's intent for Israel to be a blessing to the nations but they had monopolized the covenant blessing and made no attempt to bring other nations into covenant relationship with God. Israel was called into a unique position to be God's peculiar people. But this selection was not to be the point of exclusion of others. In fact, it was the very opposite. Israel was called to be a servant nation operating in the role as a kingdom of priests ministering to the nations of the world. God had even made provision for the foreigner within the old covenant. He commanded his people, Ezekiel 47, Ye shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. But Israel had not performed well in accomplishing their divine calling to be the source of blessing to the nations. It was for this lack of performance that God turned toward another means for the expansion of his kingdom throughout the earth. And this new means was his church. The upper room event would forever, uh, as Brother uh, Bo pointed out, would forever change the course of human history. The initial outpouring of the Holy Ghost flowed into people out of every nation under heaven, according to Acts 2.5. This was the new covenant. That would be for all people, which is good news for all of us that are here today that are not covenant people. We were brought into relationship through the work of Jesus Christ in the event of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 event was the healing of the curse 
of Babel's divide. Where division developed as a result of language, Pentecost provided a unification that developed as a result of a heavenly language. It is important to remember that there was a process of development that had to be worked through even for the New Testament church. The initial outpouring through cross-cultural and even multi-ethnic, though uh, cross-cultural and even multi-ethnic was still limited, that's a typo that's supposed to say though, though uh, and not through, was still limited to the Jews. It was not until Acts 10 that the covenant would cross the great Gentile divide as the Holy Spirit filled Cornelius and the Italian household. The church must never lose sight of God's intention of redeeming the world is bigger than our own culture or our people group with whom we feel comfortable. Notice Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the land, Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Don't overlook the fourth word in that text that I gave you. Everybody say looked. I looked. John the Revelator was able to see that there were different people groups. There was a visible difference. Our salvation experience did not remove our distinctions ethnically or even culturally. The church does not promote a colorblind ethic, but rather shows a diversity of cultures and ethnicities that kneel down together and worship the Lamb. We are neither excluded or included according to our DNA. The Apostle Paul stated there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our worship, no matter the cultural background or ethnicity, is to be centered on the Lamb. The purpose of the church seems clear from Scripture, which begs the question, how have we become so segregated in our worship? That, folks, is the big question. And I wish we could uh, go back in time and uh, maybe speak from the future to the past uh, to our elders that went before us that begged them to hold the line. If you study Talmadge French's book and some of the histories of uh, the apostolic movement in the last century, uh, the segregation of worship in America, the last uh, group to worship together was the apostolic movement. Political pressure is what led to the segregation of worship. Uh, and statistically, it's an amazing story, uh, if you look into it, even in the days of slavery, black and white were allowed to worship together in the same room. Now, often they were sent to the balcony. The slaves were sent to the balcony. Uh, but there is literally now, statistically, we are more segregated now than we were in worship pre-Civil War. It's an amazing statistic. Uh, and, and I wish we could go back and armchair quarterback, it's easy today, but could we speak to our elders and say, could you hold on? And we held on longer. You, you, you go back and you read those books, you'll find out the apostolics held on longer. But, but at some point, 
uh, the apostolic movement caved to the political pressure and the context of their society, and so now we live with results. And so I don't, I don't have time to go into all of the reasons why we have segregated, but uh, I tried to focus here in this short amount of time, uh, so let's pick back up. To fully understand this question would require more than this assignment allows, but we will attempt to address a portion of the lack of cultural diversity in most worship settings in North America. The cultural cloistering of Christianity has developed due, number one, to our fallen human nature. But I would add for this next portion as well as misguided thinking. The denominal church world and even the apostolic movement in the second half of the last century was largely influenced by Donald McGravern's book, The Bridges of God. And some of you are saying, well, that didn't influence the apostolic church. It did. You may have never read the book, but we were all affected. It was largely influenced by Bridges of God. McGravern provided the fundamental principles of what would become known as the church growth movement. And much of even what has been promoted organizationally across the board about church growth literally came out of McGavern's book. We all put our own little color stripes and, and uh, put our own little banners on it and our own little mantras, but it came out of McGavern's uh, work, The Bridges of God. And it became known as the church growth movement. He introduced what he called the homogeneous unit, unit principle, or shortened to be HUP. McGavern stated that men like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, are class barriers. He further stated that the barriers to the acceptance of the gospel are often more sociological than theological. People reject the gospel not because they think it's false, but because it strikes them as alien. They imagine that in order to become a Christian, they must renounce their own culture, lose their own identity, and betray their own people. And the HUP approach to evangelism gave rise to ministry on particular people groups or ethnicity, and you had organizational structures that in the wake of the HUP idea that began to launch particular focused evangelism efforts. They would recognize, well, we don't have enough Hispanics, so let's start Hispanic-focused ministries. We don't have enough Asians, let's start Asian-specific ministries. We don't have enough black people, let's start black evangelism ministry, and the list goes on. That, that was that was all coming out of the church growth movement that the HUP principle, this HUP was launched forth and it gave rise to many, many of these things. And it was, uh, let me qualify, it was with good intentions because no one was trying to exclude people from the gospel. But it was misguided at the very least. These were not just language-based worship centers, but over time grew to centers of common culture, often race-based. This mindset shaped much of the church growth movement that influenced churches to start churches or daughter churches based on race and culture, thus widening the gap of segregation within Christianity, even though that was not the intended result. The HUP is contrary to Scripture. As Chong states, the Great Commission is originally and inherently a cross-cultural commission. This thinking has even influenced the apostolic movement. An honest self-examination may reveal that our church fellowship is too often more about common ethno-cultural traits instead of Jesus. 
Sometimes what we think is kingdom culture is simply organizational tradition or even denominational culture our traditional ethnic worship culture that we grew up in. The apostolic church must take an honest look at what is truly the kingdom and what is our traditional socio-cultural norm. Not all churches have cross-cultural ministry options due to their location. I understand that. But every church can have a multi-ethnic ethic. The apostolic church can build awareness within the local congregation that all are welcome through global mission efforts, church planting, and partnering with ministries of other ethnicities. Multicultural ministry is not just ministry that attempts to bring different shades of skin color together, but it is ministry that reaches out to diverse nationalities, ethnicities, and cultural. I can promise you whether you're in a rural or an urban setting, there is someone different than you within reach. Multicultural, cross-cultural ministry should not attempt to destroy culture or ignore the differences of people's history. This did not mean that Jews cease to be Jews or Gentiles to be Gentiles. We know that because even in the New Covenant, Paul would call Jews Jews and Gentiles Gentiles. It did mean, however, that their racial differences were no barrier to their fellowship. For through their union with Jesus Christ, both groups were now joint heirs, joint members of the same body, and joint partakers of the promise. The union of Jew and Gentile in Christ was the mystery which was revealed to Paul, which he proclaimed to all in Ephesians chapter 3. Thus the church as the single new humanity of God's new society is central to the gospel. It is important for the apostolic church to get cross-cultural, multi-ethnic ministry efforts right. Because our world, our nation, our states, and even our cities are changing. And I would even say our rural communities are changing. The North American church must consider the changing demographics of our communities and at the very least seek the face of God on behalf of the sea of faces that may not, may not resemble our own. Excuse me, I got cotton mouth here a minute. Post fettuccine. <laughs> Globalization and urbanization are both transforming our cities and shaping the future. As the majority of the world's population move to the urban centers, the church must be prepared to minister in the urban context. This isn't just something that's happening uh, in America, uh, in Asia, China in particular. This is an amazing statistic. Every year in the country of China, 30 million people, 30 million, that's the size of the, the population of Canada. The equivalent of Canada's entire population moves from the rural community to an urban setting every year in China. Ministry to the urban community will demand, don't miss this, I've got it highlighted in pink. Ministry to the urban community will demand an openness of multi-ethnic ministry due to the diversity that exists within the urban environment. According to Time Magazine, invited or uninvited, rich and poor, mostly poor, foreigners are pouring into the United States in great numbers, in greater numbers than any time since 
the last great surge of European immigration in the early 1900s. Indeed, the U.S. today accepts twice as many foreigners as the rest of the world's nations combined. Think about that. America's changing, folks. This is not your father's Oldsmobile. The world your grandkids, if the Lord tarries, is going to be vastly different than the world you grew up in. And I'm sorry, if you don't like it, you can't stop it. And the church is not to be afraid of that. We have a divine mandate. Although their turn-of-the-century predecessors were mainly European, today's new arrivals are mostly from Latin America and the Caribbean. They are transforming the U.S. landscape into something that has not been for decades, a mosaic of exotic languages, faces, customs, restaurants, and religions. This trend will continue to grow, and the churches that are not preparing today will experience significant challenges tomorrow related to culture and ministry. According to the Brookings Institute, the new statistics project that the nation, don't miss this, will become minority white uh, in 2045. I want that to sink in a moment. This is why the apostolic church needs to be talking about this. Because if your idea of ministry is lily white, you're going to be faced with big challenges, especially if you're in your 20s doing ministry. Because when you're in your 40s, the world's going to be different than it was when I was in my 20s. During that year, whites will comprise 49.7% of the population in contrast to 24.6% Hispanics, 13% for blacks, 7% for Asians, and 3% for multiracial populations. And that's across the board in America. Uh, in, in my city, I have watched, uh, it has been largely Caucasian, Hispanic, African American, and then Asian. And in the last two years, there has been a swap. Now it is, it is Caucasian, Hispanic, and now number three is Asian in Sacramento. We're going to see particular cities are going to become landing centers for particular places. Uh, places will be particular landing centers for immigrants from particular, especially on the Pacific Rim, those of us that are in Washington, Oregon, uh, California. There, it's going to be this way continually, and it's only going to increase. Those churches which are now looking, pastors, I hope you're listening, that are looking for ways to engage various and diverse culture will be much better prepared to meet they're growing demands for cross-cultural ministry in the future. The following data reveals the amount of foreign-born people in the USA's metropolitan communities. I won't take the time to go through that, but I want you to look at the percentage. Look at Miami. 38% of Miami's entire population is foreign-born. So if you feel a burden to Miami and you don't have multicultural ministry, you're bucking a stacked deck. This is the changing world, and we won't take the time to go through all of those, but keep that for your own information. So here's where I'll wrap it up in this last paragraph, and then we'll take some questions, uh, and I could preach this last section. North, the North American context is pre presently experiencing great upheaval as cultural norms are being challenged. The media, the political world, most often paint the picture 
in extremely negative language which further exacerbates the issue. I propose that the apostolic church see this as a chirotic moment or a time of opportunity in which the gospel of Jesus and his church can be seen gleaming brightly against the dark curtain of prejudice and politics. This can be our finest hour as the church in the present age is to be the preview of what the world will look like when Jesus Christ establishes and reigns on the earth. We must never forget that Jesus commanded, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Thank you, Brother Young. What a tremendous presentation on multiculturalism. And uh, I'm anxious to hear more about uh, what we can do to reach our world right here in North America or wherever our ministry context may be. So again, in the way of questions or in the way of instructions for questions, I'd like to ask that you raise your hand, wait for the microphone, have your question framed already in your mind. Try to take and, and limit that to one question. That way you're a uh, presenter doesn't have to think too much about uh, a two, three-pronged question. Make sure that we use decorum and uh, congeniality when we pose our questions. And uh, let's, let's ha have some uh, interaction and interact his expertise at this time. And uh, anyone have a first question? Yes, brother. Thank you, Brother Young. It was excellent, as always. My question, my name is Nathan Neff. I'm from Baker City, Oregon. And we have about five blacks and two Hispanics in Baker. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we got a few more. Um, but I do want to know, you mentioned on page 76, you talk about multicultural, cross-cultural ministry should not attempt to destroy culture or ignorance or, or ignore the differences of a people's history. What multicultural differences should we allow or not accept what what are you getting at with that can you expound on what we should be specifically open to or closed down to uh, that's a very good question in fact uh, because of time or whatever length of paper there is there's an idea that this is not even a term that we should use multiculturalism because the idea is that um, proponents of this idea are that the church has only one culture and that it's the God culture, the kingdom culture. And I get that. But that, 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 that works for us as apostolics. We know what that means. Uh, but if you were to say that outside of a church setting, that they would look at you like, what are you talking about? I also understand that I do have a culture. Okay, I have, I have a white culture. I also come from Louisiana. I have a Cajun culture. My, my family's background, our name is really not even young. We're Lejeunes. And it was because they couldn't spell it. The census taker changed to Antoine Lejeune. And so we became, I mean, Lejeune means the young. So we became the English-speaking group of the family, okay? So I do have a very deep Cajun culture, okay? That what I'm saying there is I don't stop being, I don't stop being a Jew nationally when I got saved. Paul even talked about Jews. I didn't stop being from Louisiana, so I'm going to look through things through the lens of Louisiana, okay? You're going to look, I mean, Texas, don't mess with Texas. Texans are like their own nation, okay? 
And we could go down the list. We all have our own background or our history where we've come from. So when I use the term multiculturalism, please understand, I'm not saying that in opposition to a kingdom culture, which trumps everything. Uh, but what I would say is that use it in a loose, accepted term when I use multiculturalism, is that we're coming from our different backgrounds. Maybe it would be more effective. Some, some people don't use the term multicultural. They'll use cross-cultural or they will use multi-ethnic. And maybe that, that may be a little better. What we're wanting is to make all ethnic groups feel welcome in this kingdom culture. So that's answer number one. Now answer number two is what is acceptable. I, don't, I, I think if it, if it doesn't measure up to the word of God, then it's not acceptable. That, that gets us into syncretism. You know? And you're seeing the uh, uh, charismatic movement largely, and Brother Aller could speak to this at length, uh, in the fastest growing Pentecostalism is exploding in Central America and Africa in particular. And in both those places, in Central, uh, Central and South America, uh, Latin America and Africa, you have in some you, you have ancient doctrines of uh, voodoo, of witch doctors, and on the list goes. And what you're seeing uh, there, one of the things that the pushback against Pentecostalism in Africa is the syncretism that is going on, where they're merging their African worship culture with the gospel. That's not acceptable to me. Okay, uh, but. We do have a different culture, and, and I experienced this firsthand for a number of years uh, pastoring in Oakland, California, and at the time our church was probably, uh, I would say probably 80% uh, African American, um, and then pastoring at Sacramento at the same time and making the journey back and forth, uh, it became very apparent that not only did I have different culture, I had different culture about the same thing related to the kingdom. And one of the ways I figured it out pretty quickly was, was the song, I Am Blessed. Y'all remember that song? I am blessed. I mean, I, I, that, the tune never fit. That's the way white people sing it. It, it more fits like, I'm depressed. I'm deep. And I grew up hearing that song. That was the way white people sang it. Well, then when I pastored in Oakland and the congregation 80% uh, African American, it was a, I am blessed. Da, 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 da. I am blessed. And man, I was like, okay, that song, it's, it's a. And I remember one Sunday we had sung it in Oakland, and I traveled back the 90 miles to Sacramento, and we sang it, and I'm like, did I just fall through a wormhole? The same words. The same tune, but culturally very different. And so when I, when I talk about all that culture coming in, we can't deny that's there. And neither do I think we should try to change that. Because to try and change that Oaklandite, whatever their background is, and put them into that model would be just as wrong as trying to take this and try to put that in that model. So if I, think, I think we have to find ways for these to work together. That's what I meant in, the, in that regard. I hope that answer the question. Pastor Mayo. This question just came in uh, through our Holy Ghost Radio portal from Brother Cornelius Williams in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He states, early Pentecostal ethic divides 
ethnic divides in America can find its roots in divided leadership post-Azusa Street revivals. Just as disciples were chosen with prayerfulness and carefulness for daily administration, do you believe that applying restructuring the ethic appeal in organizational leadership assists in church multiculturalism? I don't have a monitor up here, so I, I didn't get all of that. What was the last part? Do you believe that applying restructuring the ethic appeal in, I don't know if that's supposed to be ethnic, but he has ethic appeal in organizational leadership assists in church multiculturalism? I, I think I got that. I think he's asking should we change our approach or appeal to include uh, the way I'm going to get this, the way I got that is, is there a, a better way to approach ministry related to this? Is that a fair, is that a fair assumption? That's what it sounds like to me. Uh, and I think he made mention of the issue in Acts chapter six. Did he bring that up? No. Okay. Uh, I, I think there's a very real example to how approach should be handled. Um, some of the most, not most, that's an overstatement, but one of the things that's often overlooked is that God, God wasn't, uh, just randomly choosing people. Okay. We look at the ministry of the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul is sent to the Gentiles and you begin to look where those missionary journeys went. And the Bible says, finding certain disciples, God's in defining certain disciples. He, he has specific tools. In fact, Paul, you've been chosen as a light to the Gentiles. And if you look, Paul, Saul, Paul, was, we, all, we, all, we love to say he changed his name. He didn't change his name. One was his Hebrew name and one was his Gentile name. He was a bicultural man. He was a Jewish man who grew up in a Gentile community that was part of the diaspora. And so God specifically chose him to go do these things where he went. And you begin to follow his missionary journeys. The majority of the places he went, he could relate with them because he had grown up in that environment. He wasn't just some random guy that God knocks off a horse. He was specifically chosen because he met the demands that was needed to, to cross the ministry, to cross into that culture. Uh, Brother Allard and I have been a part of a deep discussion uh, at Fuller uh, on the book of Acts. And you look at the Acts 6 issue, uh, the seven deacons as we call them, even though the Bible doesn't call them, but those seven men that were chosen, including Stephen, all seven of them dealing with the problem. Now think about this. The apostles said, we got to get this fixed. And then they go get seven guys to fix the problem. Those seven guys were all cross-cultural, bicultural in their background. So that was a definite, specific choosing of people that could operate in both, I call them the initiators, that, that can operate in two dimensions. They, they were Jewish, but they had a Gentile background and, and due to the diaspora. They had grown up or were closely in relationship. You look at their names, you look at the background, and Deep Study's been doing that. So I, I don't know if that's exactly how that is answering the question, but I think there was definite purpose in the choosing of the people and even the Apostle Paul chosen to be the light to the Gentiles. Okay. Brother Williams asks another question. He says, what are some tips for dealing with cultures in our cities that move to the United States with no desire to assimilate and worship together, such as Korean churches, etc.? 
can I interject uh, right prior to that question? I, I think that really what's being asked there, and uh, just, just a, a point of clarification, um, basically when people come into the United States and we consider their worldviews, and are they from the east, from the south, or from the west? And so when we consider those worldviews, we have uh, basically several different ideas. We have justice and guilt from the western culture, we have honor and shame from the Eastern culture, and we have power and fear from the African, Caribbean, South American cultures. So what are some practical ways that we can deal with these other worldviews in bringing them to the gospel? Uh, again, I don't claim to have all of the answers. We're doing, we're doing our best to uh, make a difference. Um, I, would, I would say that it starts with a burden, number one. And I think uh, prayer God, lead, lead me to the right opportunities. Lead us to the right opportunities. Um, I, have, I have been asked many times, how do you, in fact, it was interesting, Monday uh, I received a call from uh, a PAW pastor who called and said, hey, Pastor Young, I want to, I want to talk to you. He said, how? he said, I don't want to just pastor a black church. He said, how can I get other people in my church? And uh, I started laughing. I said, well, I'm going to talk about multiculturalism uh, in the church. You ought to come to Spokane with me. Um, and we, we had fun laughing about that. But this is, this is on people's minds. And I think it begins in the spirit because I think God is interested in this uh, because he intended the gospel to be for all people. Um, I, would, I would say the operation of the spirit, first of all, find the mind of God. And I believe that God will send, I'm going to reference them again, initiators. And initiators are unique, and they need to be guarded. Now, this we're just going to get a little, this is pastoral secrets here. When you have an initiator, that's not an official term, that's just what I call them. These are people that are able to cross color or cultural or racial lines. In the Rock Church, I can name some of them who they were. Uh, one is dead and gone on to be with the Lord, Brother Jeff Queenan. This was a man that was African-American, that came, and at the time, I don't think if there may have been, there may have been one or two people of color, uh, a few Hispanics. Elk Grove was largely a redneck cowboy town when, when Bishop uh, uh, wound up buying the property and moving there. And Jeff was an Air Force man uh, that came to the Rock Church. Jeff, maybe because of his military background, uh, was, was comfortable in a predominantly a white environment. He came to the Rock Church and he was a bridge. God, I believe, when, it's, when that, those, those walls begin to break and God is bringing those things, I believe God will bring initiators that are able to move back and forth out of both worlds. And as a pastor, as a leader, as a church, you, you and I need to be aware God is sending these people. You need to cover those people with prayer. Because they can be the link into a community. And it's not just a black and white thing. I'm, I'm watching God. And you, you go to the Rock Church, any service now, and you're going to see a row or two full of Fijian people. And it didn't start with, uh, we all want a big revival, but they don't start with 30 people. Usually it's one man or a man and his wife or a young person that comes. You need to cover those people with prayer. You need to cover them with prayer and make those connections because they're a bridge across. Now, you have to be careful. I made mistakes. I lost a good man who was a, a, a former Muslim. 
Well, man, I love that because we have, we have a big Muslim community in, in a mosque right down the street from our church. And, and uh, my next door neighbor is uh, a Muslim man. He's a policeman and a Muslim. He said, everybody hates me. <laughs> uh, and unbeknownst because I was trying to guard him and celebrate this is a victory, I made him feel singled out. And he, when he wanted to just be one of the numbers. So I, I, I'm not claiming to have all the answers. I made mistakes. And I'll probably make some more. Blame it on my brain, not my heart. Uh, so there's this dance that we have to do. But I do believe that, that one of the things that God is going to help us with is God's going to bring people or families that become those initiators that help build that bridge between culture. And let, let me say, one of, one of the greatest things, especially if you're in an urban environment, uh, it, it's changing so fastly. Uh, immigrants are ripe for the gospel. Now, they may, not, they may not be interested in worship. They may not be interested in church. But here's what happens. They come to America looking for a dream. They've grown up in the South Pacific or the Philippines or Africa or Central America. And their whole life is either try to get across that border or get on a plane and get to America and become rich. Because everybody in America lives in a big house and lives in a big subdivision and drives a big fancy car and got a beautiful kids with a white picket fence and a dog. I'll go be a millionaire and then I'll pay for my whole family. And this is the dream. And then they get here and they figure out it's not like Hollywood said it was. And they don't have any friends and they've just arrived from Samoa. They just arrived from Kenya and, and they don't have any friends. They don't have any money and they're living in a dorm room on the campus or they're living in some cheap apartment on, on the backside of somewhere and they're having to go to work and they're lonely because now they're, everything's different and traffic's different and they don't have the cash and, and there's no place like... And the best place is the apostolic church to step in and say, hey, we're having a party. You want to come meet some friends? So this is, I'm not just talking about black and white. I'm talking about our entire community. There are opportunities to bridge these, uh, to bridge these uh, gaps between us. And I think the immigrant community is a wonderful example uh, of that. Brother Blash. Um, Daniel Blige, St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for waking us up with such a provocative topic. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, maybe speak to um, the notion of American superiority um, and also could you speak to the organizational dynamics for instance, how long did it take you to become a pastor? Um, because if the answer is 20 years or 30 years, uh, that's too long to get a church that's not diverse, diverse. So how do, we, how do we move people from just coming to be a part of us, grow them through leadership, and it not take 20 or 30 years, and we not diminish the quality of ministry? What was the first part? I got the second part. I forgot. Me. I'm kidding. I wrote it down. The first part was about American superiority. Okay. Um, and, and specifically what I'm getting at is um, me personally, there are people that I encounter who are from other places. I've had more access. I've had access to education longer. I've had access to finances longer uh, than they have. And 
by virtue of all those things, um, it's easy to feel superior. Mm-hmm. And how do we combat that? So that was number one. I'll ask the second one again if you want me to later. That's a, that's a tough one. Uh, because with success comes a, a healthy increase of ego. Um, and I've watched people that struggle financially in my church live for God really good. And then blessing comes their way and they spin out. So I think that's in our fallen nature, our humanness, or as Brother Wilson would say, our finitude. Um, and I think, okay, let, let, let me separate if I can. This is a difficult situation to articulate. Um, I have some personal preferences, okay, as an American. And I believe red, white, and blue. I love America. And you're not going to take that away from me. There is that sense of America first. But I also have to understand to the Honduran, he didn't grow up with red, white, and blue. He thinks first as a Honduran. And literally, now we could get into the philosophy of American ideals and the Judeo-Christian ethic. I understand all of that. Some ways are better and, and... but, but let's just be honest. Just in our humanness, I mean, if you don't believe it's a real issue, just tag into World Cup. Okay, the Mexican loves Viva Mexico because we all love our roots. My wife can't stand Louisiana. She hates Louisiana. But don't you talk about Louisiana. I love the swamps. They say, les bon temps roulés, let the good times roll. I, I get back to Louisiana, and there's a part of me that just, I'm home. Mosquitoes are the state bird, you know, I get it. <laughs> and I know it's real because Brother Wilson still reads the Kerman Times. He gets it every week. He gets the Kerman Times. Have you been to Kerman, California? It's the armpit of California. But that's in him. That's his culture. He grew up in the farm country of Kerman, California. And we'll never take that out of him. In that same way, you're never going to get that out of the Honduran. You're never going to get that out of the American. That's who we are. But in the church, I have some political ideas. I have particular patterns of voting as an American citizen. But when it comes church time, I'm also part of a kingdom that has no boundaries. And so I have to check my American first superiority at the door. And in my church, my, there's people in my church who tell you, I tell, leave your politics at the door. We don't run for office here. Because, folks, it's going to take change, okay? So you pastor a church in an urban environment, and you got a guy that prayed through three weeks ago. He's in a Bible study. And all he's ever known is, I mean, Greenpeace. We'll just make something up. He grew up taking over tugboats on the Mississippi. I don't even know. Just make something up. And then he walks into church and he hears you up preaching or propagating something so opposite. You have just stagnated his entire faith in God because you've just, you, and you, you say, well, that's, bless God, it needs to be. That's not the kingdom. I'll offend every day when it comes to the gospel, but I'm not going to lose a soul over who you voted for for president. (laughs) 
So we have, we have to be careful. We have to, uh, so that would, be, that would be one of the answers that we have to think of this kingdom first mentality. And uh, as time, we work together, we grow together. Now, as far as the, the ministry side of things, uh, if the Lord tarries, I don't, I don't think we've got 30 years for people to get developed. I mean, I, I, I love the thought of, of, of that, but we need, we need some quicker things to develop. And um, let's use a real carnal, high place example. Let's, let's, let's elephant in the room, let's use, uh, let's talk about black and white. Is that all right? He was a black man asking a white man, okay? So I'll use the NFL. There was a big move in years gone past in the National Football League is how do you get, uh, how do you get more black head coaches? That was a problem. That was a big issue. And so one of the ways they figured this out, and probably some of you could even talk about this in the business sector, uh, one of the ways they figured out is it doesn't just happen. It doesn't equate that you were a good football player, you're going to get a head head coach position. But what they figured out is you've got to get in middle management positions. So you've got to become a defensive coach prove yourself there but there had to be some intention there and so I would say uh, if we're wanting to see this kind of tags into brother Carnese Williams is is a question back there maybe is that if we want to see a, a healthier and more robust and more vibrant multicultural ministry then uh, there needs to be opportunity provided at maybe maybe um, these are the wrong terms, but maybe you'll understand, like middle management, middle leadership uh, in positions of leadership in the church and in organizations and structures that grow up. Because that's the way it, uh, I don't know how many here in the United Pentecostal Church, but uh, whether anybody realizes it or not, the youth division shaped the movement. Because mm-hmm. you find the guy in the, in, in the section who's the gifted youth leader, then he serves on the youth committee and then he becomes the youth president for the district. And then he, the one out of all the district leaders that becomes the, the, the leader and raises the most money most of the time, he winds up being put on the national committee. And then the national committee, and I watched that happen in the district I grew up in, and Jerry Jones moved all the way up and became the assistant or secretary. And that's the way it moves. And that's the same way it is in the business world. It's the same way it is in the, and so the more development and training that happens, I think, is one way. Is that what you were talking about? Does that answer that? I don't know if that's right, but that's just my opinion. Back there in the middle. Um, Ashley Morrison, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you and um, all the leaders in the Apostolic Church who are addressing this issue. Um, I think it's very important. And um, with that said, I, my question is focusing on the young people, particularly the teens, um, simply because they are more a product, tend to be more of a product of their environment. And so you'll often see them being more vocal in their actions, whether that be through cliques or, um, you know, the such. And so my question is, how would you address this change? Because there seems to be... Um, cultural segregation amongst the teens and how could you 
as a leader or as a teacher, how could you address this issue without, I guess, causing isolation yeah. or tension yeah. in church? Yeah, and uh, I guess this is the environment where you can just really be blunt. Is that okay? See, this is difficult for Brother and Sister Morrison and Brother uh, Blash to say. Because here's what happens. The moment Dan Blash stands up, or Brother Morrison stands up and says, uh, we need racial equality in the apostolic movement, he gets pushed aside as the angry black man. Number one, it, it, this needs to be heard from white people and brown people and Asian people. Okay, number one. Um, so that's that's one issue um, the other thing is as leaders we have to we have to understand we've allowed these walls to fall in certain cultures but we've held on to certain cultures where we haven't accepted it okay uh, and it creates problems for young people and we could get specific, but for the second time, I won't. But I think as leaders, number one, we have to have opportunities like this to really uh, be plain and talk about it. And maybe even some things that have been negative that have created these opportunities are very important. And I think, I think first of all, let me, let me answer with two. One's a shorter and then one's a little more lengthy. My first thing would be to the leaders and the pastors is that... We have to understand that not everybody shares the same history. Now, we, and this is gonna, this may rub some of us wrong, but let's just be real honest, okay? Well, and I've heard this a thousand times because I grew up in the South, and I heard this excuse. Well, you know, you just can't do that here. You can't have multicultural church here. Well, my, my first pushback to that is, well, I could take you across town to the big charismatic church where everybody's worshiping together in the same town, okay? But here's what has to happen. The first thing is the leader's got to have a burden for it and pray for it and get the mind of God. But that leader also has to understand not everybody shares the same experience, okay? My mother told me as a child, okay, my mother's still alive, so I'm pastoring my mother. She remembers there being colored water fountains and white water fountains. But remember, every other black lady in my church experiences that same history, but it's a different history. She was drinking from the other fountain. We can't forget that. And if I were to, let me just do a little poll. How many here are aware and understand what the Tuskegee syphilis trials were? Would you raise your hand? Okay, I just want to keep your hand up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Fifteen people. How many is in this room? Sixteen. If I were in a African American congregation this side, and I said, Brother Blash, you're grinning, you know what I'm fixing to say. If I would say, How many here are aware of the Tuskegee syphilis trials? There wouldn't be sixteen people that didn't know because we don't have the same history. The Tuskegee syphilis trials were in 1932. Men, there were 600 participants 
unwittingly that uh, 201 of them, I think it was, uh, had syphilis, did not know they had syphilis, and it was supposed to be a six-month testing. And in four years, we discovered the cure was penicillin for syphilis. But until 1972, nobody helped these African-American men and they did secret testing on 600 black men in the United States with syphilis, having the cure, but never gave it to them, but made them guinea pigs in your nation. And you don't know that history because you're white. But every black college student that walks in your door knows that story. So there's a whole lot that's going on behind all of the foment and all of the anger and these issues that we're seeing propagated in the media and, and, and things that, that we need to be aware of and say, Brother Young, well, we didn't do that. Well, understand, that's what you're up against. So when you come with your America first mentality, you don't even have the same patriotic heritage of that older couple in your church. Their, their life is very different than yours. And... That is part of understanding is that, number one, you got to be aware. Yeah, we're all moving through this, but we need to be aware. Not everybody's story is the same. So how would I do that? Now to part, the, my second answer to that question is I believe that one of the best things we can do, the best answer for heresy is truth. And the best thing we can do, this ties in with some of the other things, is we have got to begin to teach our people and we have to be intentional about it. One of the things uh, that I would say to you is that pastors and leaders, if you don't do anything else, start preaching a whosoever will ethic to your church. Start preaching to whosoever will. Uh, another example that you could do is just take every Wednesday night, and it's easy to do because it's the book of Acts. Take the book of Acts and preach all nations in the book of Acts. You could start Acts 1 and 8, the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 2, 5, out of every nation under heaven. Acts 2, 11, who did hear speak in our own tongue. Acts 2, 39, all that are far off. Acts 3, 25, Abraham and thy seed will all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Acts 6, Greek widow. Acts 7, Abraham is, is a Chaldean. He comes from Iraq and Syria. That's, that's what a Chaldean means. Remember, Abraham was from Mesopotamia. He didn't start off a Jew. You can just go through chapter Acts 10, Carnelius, Acts 11, the subsequent discussion at that first general council. Acts 13, Antioch, Barnabas and Saul are sent as missionary. Acts 15, Jerusalem council, tabernacle of David, that the residue of men might seek the Lord. And on the list goes the Macedonian man. Come over and help us. And then they get there and it's not a man at all, it's Lydia. I mean, explain that one, that one's funny too. So my point is, is just, and that's just those first few chapters. If you don't do anything else, just start connecting. Mm. Start connecting, telling these stories. Get, get in people's life. Reach out. Make these connections. Get your church. Say, well, Brother Young, we, I, I get it. You pastor in Compton, you're probably not going to have a lot of white people show up for Wednesday night Bible study. You pastor in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, you're, if you got a white guy shows up for church, he's probably the preacher you invited to come preach. If you're in Minnesota, you're probably not going to get many African Americans at your Tuesday night Bible study. Now, you may get a Native American close by. So how do I do that? Well, you keep preaching it anyway. 
and you find ways to get your people's eyes on a global picture. Mm -hmm. That if that black man walks in, or that white man walks in, or that Hispanic man walks in, they feel just as welcome as if they had walked in anywhere else. Go ahead. Let them know how much we appreciate this. Thank you, Brother Young. Thank you so very much. And uh, our time has expired for questions. We have to move on to our next session. However, we're taking a 10-minute break. We'll see you in around 10 minutes. God bless you. We'll look forward to hearing Brother Blash in just a few moments.